Now, we are not a big crowd out here, but you're a better looking crowd than the other people, let me tell you, okay? Then across the hall, you could have done the medical marijuana for skin conditions. You smoke enough, your skin looks really beautiful, right? I just gave you the whole talk, nothing proud. So we're going to talk about uh, assessing comorbidities. In our current climate, where we want to avoid using opiates, whether you agree or disagree with that, is that I firmly believe that you know, most of these patients with chronic pain have significant comorbidities. And if you have the ability to manage these comorbidities, you're going to naturally opioid spare, which doesn't mean that opiates don't have a role. And that's kind of the whole point of this. So conflict of interest. I have a myriad of personal conflicts, but I have no professional conflicts. As I said in an earlier talk, which is why I drive an old Subaru. So if you have a conflict for me, please see me after the talk. And this presentation does not contain any off-label off, uh, or investigational use of drugs. So here's basically the learning uh, disability, disabilities, objectives, my disabilities. Uh, describe the common comorbidities, explain the risk-benefit of antidepressants and benzodiazepines, uh, and identify non-pharmacologic approaches to managing these comorbidities. We all know that uh, when we manage patients with chronic pain that there's a variety of uh, co-concomitant uh, symptoms that occur, sleep disturbance, depression, anxiety, substance misuse, abuse in some cases, secondary medical problems, the patients you know, are not uh, moving, they're not exercising, they gain weight, they develop obstructive sleep apnea, hypertension, diabetes, functional disabilities and cognitive distortions. And all of these affect the patient's quality of life and all of these affect their ability to, to uh, participate in the world. If you look at chronic pain comorbidities, it's mood disorders, anxiety disorders, PTSD. One of every seven patients that comes to a pain clinic actually has undiagnosed PTSD. Sleep disorders, personality disorders, and secondary medical conditions. We're really going to focus on the three major comorbidities, which are mood, anxiety disorders, and sleep disturbance. So if you look at the data on, on pain, mood, and anxiety disorders, this is a National Comorbidity Survey, about almost 6,000 patients. They completed this extensive psychiatric evaluation. And if you look at chronic pain patients versus the general population, you can see across the board that at all mood disorders, dysthymia, generalized anxiety disorders, all the way down to phobias, agoraphobia, PTSD, et cetera, are significantly more prevalent in pain patients than in the general population. These are all statistically significant. So these patients come loaded with, with bear, right? They come in with all these comorbidities. An area that I'm particularly interested in, so my areas of expertise, I don't know expertise, but my interests are pain, substance abuse, and pain and suicide, which is why I'm never invited to parties. However, I'm a lot of fun, okay? Because as soon as you say, I like to study substance abuse and suicide, everyone goes like, whoa, you are a downer. But I got interested in the whole suicide thing because I was at a national conference and we were talking about unintentional overdoses, unintentional overdoses. And I said, how do you know they're unintentional? These are pretty brittle people. Most of our pain patients are vilified and pushed to the edge. How do you assume it's just they're all dumb and overdose? Because I think that the literature would suggest that it's a, a much higher prevalence. There's a robust literature that, that, that demonstrates there's a high prevalence of suicidal ideation in patients with chronic pain, anywhere from 18 to 50 percent. One study done by a colleague of mine, Nicole Tang at the University of Warwick, showed that if you had chronic pain, that you were 50 percent more likely to end your life by suicide than the general population. That's pretty staggering. Look at patients who have substance use disorders. 
40% of patients that seek treatment for their substance use disorder have had a history of suicide attempts, not just ideation. So if you know the suicide literature, basically suicidal ideation is very prevalent. Actual attempts is pretty low. So in this population, 40% seeking treatment. A sad note is a lot of patients that go to methadone maintenance programs to get enrolled, that if you endorse suicidal ideation, they do not admit you into treatment. And that's just really sad. If someone has an alcohol use disorder, they are 10 times more likely to end their life by suicide than the general population. If they have an injection use disorder, they're 14 times more likely. So when you see patients who have pain and a use disorder, the likelihood of them ending their lives is very high compared to the general population. Now that I've made you all depressed on Friday afternoon, let's talk about sleep disorders. Um, this is a really interesting area. I mean, chronic pain, again, is associated with multiple comorbidities, but studies have shown that over 50% of patients, up to 70% of patients with chronic pain, endorse sleep disturbance. These are two studies, one by Lance McCracken and one by Nicole Tang, looking at patients coming in for treatment, and you can see that in general, you know, that the vast, whoops, the vast majority of patients with chronic pain have some level of sleep disturbance. This is a, an R01 I have from the National Institute of Health in NIDA. These are over a, a 600 patients that have come in with chronic pain, some with and without opioid use disorders. But if you look at it, uh, only 8% said that they slept well, that 34% had moderate sleep disturbance, 40% had severe, and 18% had mild. Well, what's the relationship between the pain experience and sleep? So untreated or untre undertreated or untreated insomnia with chronic pain leads to increased pain, and we'll talk about the mechanism of that, excessive fatigue, poor mood, and higher rates of disability, all of which kind of fuels their poor quality of life. Experimental studies have shown that in the short term, sleep deprivation or disruption increases pain and inflammation, dampens mood and pain inhibitory response. Long-term sleep disturbance can lead to anxiety, widespread pain, diabetes, hypertension, and CHD. One of the precursors for fibromyalgia is sleep disturbance. If you ask your patients, when you started having these symptoms, what was going on in your life? They'll say, I just had a baby, I lost my job. There's some stressful event, and it's associated with sleep disturbance, and it almost triggers the fibromyalgia, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. Well, pain and sleep are bidirectional. You know, you don't sleep well, you have more pain. You, don't have, you have pain, you don't sleep well, and the patients get trapped in this cycle. There's, a, again, a persuasive uh, literature on this bidirectionality between pain and sleep. So what happens? What are the mechanisms of actions? One is reduced pain tolerance. So if you take a, 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 a college student who's dumb enough to, to sign up for a psychological experiment, and you put their arm in a, in a cold presser test, you know, looking at their pain tolerance, and let's say they hold it for 30 seconds. That's their pain tolerance. You REM sleep deprive them, bring them back in the laboratory, put it in there, it goes to 15, 15 seconds. So it actually decreases their pain tolerance. We also know there's a pro-inflammatory process, that when you're sleep deprived, any of us, it promotes the release of, of interleukin-6, which is a pro-inflammatory cytokine. So people who have the, that their pain is generated by an inflammatory process, like RA, OA, you're actually driving up their pain. On a side note, we also know that infl inflammation in your body increases your risk for a variety of cancers. So when people aren't sleeping, and most people that manage pain patients don't feel real competent in, in managing these sleep disorders. 
So again, opioid sparing. We have mood, sleep, anxiety. So it all leads to increased pain, increased opioid use, and possible misuse. So misuse versus abuse versus addiction, which is all mixed up together in the literature. So misuse is using an agent for what is therapeutically intended, but not as prescribed. So they're prescribed two percodoodles a day and they take three, right? Um, abuse is using it for what is not therapeutically intended. So many of our patients will use it to induce sleep at night. We know that opiates have strong axiolytic and hedonic effects, so they're self-treating their depression and anxiety. And addiction is that out-of-control, compulsive use, craving for non-pain relief. Three different things. And most patients I see really don't meet criteria for an opioid use disorder, but they're in that misuse or abuse category. And again, when you treat the comorbidities, most of that just dissipates. So how do we assess all this? How do we assess mood, anxiety, and sleep? So there's a variety of mental health screening tools um, that, that have been developed that measure both anxiety and depression, and some have both. I tend to use the Beck Depression Inventory Fast Screen, not just because it was developed at Penn, uh, but because it's, it's meant for uh, medical patients, you know, the, and so you really get a more accurate sort of snapshot of their depression. Um, and most people, I suggest, and if you're having a busy primary care practice, is to screen with the PHQ-4. And this is two questions on anxiety, two on depression. If they are positive for anxiety or depression, then you can shift to the PHQ-9, which is basically DSM-4 criteria for a major depressive disorder. Very simple. This is free, um, you know, to get offline. And if they have anxiety, they screen positive for anxiety, you can follow up with a more granular assessment of anxiety using the GAD-7. But it's really important, you know, we, people will do depression. I mean, at, at Penn and another hospital I'm at, they all screen for depression, but not anxiety. And we know that anxiety drives up their pain. We know anxiety drives up their opioid use. So we have to look at both and have a snapshot of it. Also, if you're going to use a therapeutic agent, so you put them on an SSRI for depression and anxiety, don't you want to know a month later if it's actually working or not? We need to have these, these metrics. Sleep assessment, there's really three categories, sleep scales, sleep logs, and actigraphy. So there's a variety of sleep assessment scales that have been developed. Some are more for research than other things, looking at sleep quality, sleep onset general. The one that's most frequently used is a Pittsburgh Sleep Quality Index. Just takes five to 10 minutes to, to fill out. Subject, and it looks at a variety of subscales like sleep latency, sleep quality, sleep duration. And if you're going to be treating these with like cognitive behavioral therapy, insomnia, which we'll talk about, it's, under, it's good to know what type of disturbance they have. But you also have a global score of their sleep disturbance. I use a lot of sleep logs, so I have patients collect data because a lot of the, is, our sleep disturbance is driven by poor sleep hygiene. And when you intervene with sleep hygiene interventions, it's nice to know what they're doing. So it's when they go to sleep, how many times they woke up, did they get out of bed, did they use stimulants, did they exercise. Also, cognitive appraisal. You, what, were, what were you doing that night? What were you thinking when you went to bed? Which, again, we have a cognitive intervention for. So it's nice to get a, kind of an idea of what their behavioral and cognitive you know, processes are. How many people have a Fitbit on? How many steps did you do today? Did you hit the 10,000? You know when it vibrates? When I first did it, I thought I was having a stroke. <laughs> but actigraphy has been around for a long time. I'm not sure how accurate the Fitbit is, but it does give you some more objective measures of sleep quality and activity. So one thing that's interesting, is particularly if patients are on opiates and, or benzodiazepines, is to look at sleep disorder breathing. 
And one thing you can do in, in, this, in a clinic is take a history and physical examination. We'll assess the next circumference. If it's greater than 18, they probably have obstructive sleep apnea. Evaluate throat and nose for restricted airway. I also suggest getting a urine drug test to detect non-prescribed benzos, because sometimes patients aren't misleading you, but they forget that the psychiatrist gave them clonazepam, and you're having them on an opiate, and they just forgot about it. And you can hopefully check it in the prescription drug monitoring plan, but to look if there's other CNS depressants to put them at risk for respiratory depression. Administer the Epworth sleepiness scale, which I'll show you in a minute. If the patient is candidate for opioid therapy or is on opioid therapy, you, in, you inherit the patient. Consider getting a polysomnogram if they're positive for any of this. And a lot of insurance companies are using the portable ones rather than the sleep lab ones. I'm not sure how accurate they are, but it's, it's good to protect your practice and the patient. This is the Epworth sleepiness scale, which really gives you sort of a marker of whether they have uh, sleep apnea. It's just a really good skill. And you don't do it on every patient, but you, it's nice to have these kind of tools at your fingertips. Now let's kind of shift to, to treatment approaches, both pharmacologic and, and non-pharmacologic. So antidepressants, as we know, has a great role in treating a variety of, of comorbidities. Um, one is that <clears throat> most of the patients have a, a high prevalence of depression, so you're treating their depression. The pain is a, is a perception. When they're less depressed, they perceive their pain differently. There's also very strong evidence of analgesic properties of tricyclics and certain SNRIs. Before we had all designer drugs, if anyone's old enough, what did you use mostly? For migraines, for neuropathic pain, we used tricyclics, right? Hard sometimes because of the, the side effect profile that you see with, the, with higher doses. But tricyclics, SNRIs, like opiates, are used to modulate descending inhibitory pain pathways. <clears throat> so oftentimes you can hit sleep, mood, anxiety, and pain with the right antidepressants. This is an interesting study looking at fibromyalgia. Um, it display less functional connectivity in the brain. And you know, people, how many people have treated fibromyalgia patients? Kind of very frustrating, right, in some ways. And you know, fibromyalgia, when it was first kind of coined the term, was really mostly women, so therefore it had to be hysteria, although women are just smarter than men and get help, right? Um, and then they started to understand the biology of fibromyalgia, you know, and the fibromyalgia patient's brain is wired differently than the non-fibromyalgia patient's brain. And I always have this, this really bitter feeling when I talk to people because they think that pain and substance abuse are just social failings as opposed to biology, which is ridiculous. I was at, as a side note, I was at giving a, a lecture to OBGYNs on addiction and pregnancy, and this woman raised her hand. She goes, this is a side note, but... How can I be empathetic with a woman who's pregnant that is abusing drugs? How can I show empathy for her? And I said, huh, interesting. Maybe you should have been in something else besides a physician. <laughs> I said, well, if she came in and she had poorly controlled diabetes because she wasn't following her regimen and it was affecting the fetal development, would you have the same feeling? She goes, oh, absolutely not. I'd be more empathetic. I said, that's your problem. You know, brain, these are all brain diseases. And just whether it's your pancreas or your brain, these are chronic disorders. So fibromyalgia patients, again, are, are wired different. This is 28 matched fibromyalgia patients compared to 14 healthy volunteers. They required significantly less pressure to stimulate um, a, on a VSA scale. Their hypoconnectivity between the rostral anterior uh, cingulate cortex and the amygdala, hippocampus, and brainstem in healthy volunteers compared to fibromyalgia patients, there was a dysfunction of the descending pain modulatory network. Isn't that interesting? So they weren't able to actually inhibit the pain signal. 
This is another one looking at, at uh, endogenous opioid activity. It's elevated at baseline in fibromyalgia patients. So they took CSF of fibromyalgia patients, which showed higher enkephalins compared to controls. They had high baseline occupancy of opioid receptors in fibromyalgia patients as compared to controls, even when they weren't on uh, opiates, exogenous opiates. Isn't that interesting? Their brain is different. And unlike the opioid system, the serotonergic norepinergic system is hypofunctional in fibromyalgia patients. So what medications work for fibromyalgia? SNRIs that, block, that, that promote serotonergic and norepinergic uh, uh, activity. So that's why duloxetine, venlafaxine, tricyclics, possibly tramadol is effective with this population. Same wise, exercise TENS units can help potentiate this descending inhibition. So these patients are wired differently. So when we're treating them, you can, again, get a lot of bang for the buck with using the right SNRI. You can, get the, you can hit their depression. Some, not as effective in their anxiety, which we'll talk about, and also their pain. So you're treating the comorbidities with an opioid sparing. We've also been using, I don't know how people have ever used, like low-dose naltrexone for fibromyalgia patients. It's kind of off-label. But Sean Mackey at, at Stanford wrote an article about it, and that theory is, is that you're kind of occupying all the opioid receptors, so it's going to promote endogenous opioid production. Um, I had some patients with central pain syndromes and fibromyalgia that responded to really low doses, so if you look at antidepressant selection, this is Kurt Kroenke, who's a, a family, family physician who's done a lot of work in here. And he, what he did is he couldn't get people into mental health. You know, it's easier to get into the Pope than it is to see a psychiatrist. You know that, don't you? Um, probably. So he came up with this sort of algorithm that patients in family practice came in with pain and depression. So he started with like an SNRI, then he went to SSRIs, then to other types of, of antidepressants. And you would kind of go through each one of them until they had a response. They also were given a self-help cognitive behavioral therapy program uh, for, for pain. And what they found was that over a year's time, as compared to usual care and intervention, there was a significant improvement in depression. This is without any mental health care. And they also found that there was an improvement in both pain interference and pain severity. So again, if you're thinking about treating, again, those comorbidities, you're improving the depression, you're improving their, their functionality and their pain. They, didn't do, they did not look at opioid use, though. So how modest effect is there in antidepressants? I, I always tell patients antidepressants are like the vitamins for the brain, that if you say, I want to be healthy today, so I'm going to take a multivitamin. Well, if you don't exercise and eat right and think right, you're not going to have a very good response. So if you look at all the different antidepressants, the, the effects are really pretty modest and compared to you know, 30% pain reduction, drug versus placebo, not much. Dropout rate is much higher with antidepressants. So again, it's one tool in the toolbox, but don't fool yourself that it's a major effect on the patients. The new thing is you spit in a cup and they can tell you what drug you need, right? Has anyone got any salesman come and tell you that? that you don't have to use your brain anymore, that you're just going to do pharmacogenetics and tell you every drug you can be on, right? So there's been this big consortium, and this is just an example of clinical pharmacogenetics looking at the CYP2D6 and CYP2C19 genotypes and dosing of tricyclics, and there's some validity to that. But this is a great review article by Drew in Nature saying that we haven't just quite gotten there yet. It can give you some guidance. So again, we're trying to de de sort of demyth some of this, that when you're trying to deal with patients, there's some validity of the pharmacogenetics, but not that much, and we need a lot more work. 
So if you look at evidence-based guidelines with antidepressants, there are no clinically significant differences in efficacy, effectiveness, or quality of life between SSRIs, SNRIs, or other second-generating antidepressants for major depressive disorder. There are only minor differences with regard to incident severity of adverse effects and sort of mixed evidence of increased risk of suicide with therapy. Mirtazapine is one that's a little bit novel, has a faster onset of action, but all four were the same at, at four weeks. But look at the last line in this. 38% of the patients did not achieve a treatment response following six to 12 weeks of therapy at a therapeutic dose with the first agent, and 54% did not achieve any remission. So again, antidepressants have a role, but it's one part of a multimodal approach. What's the most effective way to treat pain patients? multimodal, right? It's not just one molecule or one intervention. Anxiety disorders are more prevalent than depression in patients with uh, chronic pain, and anxiety can be so severe in these patients. You know, they lose their, their, their home roles, they lose their, they're under economic pressure, family pressure, societal pressure, and it becomes overwhelming with fear, avoidance behavior, cognitive distortions that kind of perpetuate the anxiety symptoms and they have difficulty even engaging in cognitive behavioral therapy or exercise because they're so overwhelmed. First-line treatment for anxiety disorders are SSRIs. And if you've gone to any of the things about benzos or the devil's dandruff, you know, but it's, it's the SSRIs are first-line treatments. And again, we ha you have to kind of mitigate the maladaptive behaviors and thoughts related to the anxiety. So the CBT and SSRIs are the best kind of combination. The problem with SSRIs, which all of you know that have used them, it takes four to six to eight to 12 weeks to actually get a therapeutic effect. And our patients are not that patient, right? So if they don't give a good response in the first week or two, they have a hard time maintaining the, staking the medications. So when you're waiting for the, the SSRI to kick in, there is a, a use for benzodiazepine. Again, all we hear is that benzos are the horrible, horrible, horrible drug. And there's true, long-term benzo with opiates are contraindicated. But while the SSRI is building in a therapeutic effect, using benzos as kind of a bridge, which psychiatrists use as a bridge drug, so that you can get the patient to maintain and be adherent, right? Patients will not follow your course of treatment if they're not getting some benefit from it. And you're asking them to wait four to eight to 12 weeks to get that full benefit. So sometimes a limited use of benzos is, is warranted. And they can be very effective in certain cases. Uh, they have some strong axolytic qualities uh, with low abuse potential. Um, Boostpar, for example, how many people have used Boostpar with patients? You know, fairly effective if someone's not an abuser. Mirtazapine is another one that's very, very good. And hydroxine, you know, are all very good low liability medications. So you can use some of these agents in combination with the SSRI to try to get that full benefit with anxiety. What about sleep disorders? We have a lot of different types of medications we can use. There's the benzo receptor agonists, there's the non-benzo receptor agonists, the melatonin agents, sedating antidepressants, atypical antipsychotics if you have the chops to use those, and anti-epileptic drugs. 
So the benzos, again, your examples are temazepine and newer classes of non-benzos such as zolpidine. So this class of drugs binds to the GABA-A receptors and induces sedating, hypnotic, amnestic, axiolytic, and anticonvulsant effects. There's many short-term clinical trials show that benzos improve sleep quality, latency, wakefulness after sleep onset, and total sleep time. Again, most of them have intermediate to long half-life, so helping patients get to sleep and stay asleep. Um, the FDA-approved benzos for insomnia include temazepam, triazolam, etc. Lorazepam and alprazolam and clonazepam are all off-label for sleep disorders. For patients with chronic pain, short-term benzo, benzo use may be useful for muscle tension, etc. And one study found that a long-term use greater than a year, pain patients had no improvement in sleep. There is no benefit for using benzos long-term for sleep disorders. Absolutely not. It's just not effective. There are short-term trials, like, you know, drug companies are great, short-term trials, everyone gets better, but long-term, there's cognitive impairment, decreased attention, um, amnesia, and again, <clears throat> long-term benzo use, you can promote depression, cognitive and psychomotor slowing. You can't abruptly discontinue it. When patients run out of their pain medicines, I say, well, you'll feel like horrible for like 72 hours, but you ain't going to die. Benzos are a little bit different. So when you have these people on these long-term benzos, there's so many different adverse effects. So given all these, all these sort of safety concerns, I really don't think there's a role for long-term sleep disorder treatment. And we're all concerned about opioids, but look at the trend. There's just, it parallels benzos and opiates in terms of misuse and abuse. And we all heard this from the CDC guidelines and every talk about it is opiates and benzodiazepines really put people at high risk for respiratory depression and death. What about the non-benzos? So that's, zolpidem is the one that's most used. Um, this class of drugs improves sleep latency have potential for fewer daytime side effects. Does everyone remember when zolpidem was first introduced? Does anyone have that memory? It was really meant for short-term, two or three days when people were having like uh, problems when they were coming back from long-term like trips from Asia or something, and then they found that everyone kind of liked zolpidem, so they started to use it more and more and more every day. It's good for, again, sleep onset, but not people who have terminal insomnia. So it's very, it can be very effective. Um, it's become the most prescribed drug for insomnia as compared to benzos in a double-blind placebo-controlled study is shown to remain effective for eight months of nightly use. There are lots of side effects. I told this story when I my earlier talk on adherence is I had a patient who just started zolpidem and she, the neck, she woke up and her daughter said, how'd you sleep last night? And she, go, she, she said, pretty darn good. She goes, come outside, Mom. She actually sleepwalked and went out and got on the riding mower and chopped down everyone's uh, trees, went over rocks, trashed the mower, and she goes, I'm not taking that anymore. Sleep eating, people will say. You know, they'll get up and just start going through the refrigerator. But again, if you compare it to benzos versus zolpidem, zolpidem's a better choice, but I think there's other choices. Antidepressants, again, can be extremely effective. And, and, you, and you want, you, the less, I gave a talk on a facilitating treatment adherence yesterday. The less number of pills you're giving people, the better, right? Because they're not going to do it. Polypharmacies are going to have poor adherence. If you can find the right molecules that can hit two or three of the symptoms, you're far better off long term. And antidepressants can be very effective. So there's sedating antidepressants such as, uh, uh, and also the tricyclics and mirtazapine, trazodone. And they really help in three ways. They help with sleep disturbance. They help with depression. And they also may have some pain relief.
Um, so if you look at the tricyclics, have this pro-serotonergic, noradrenergic, dopaminergic, sodium channel blocking effects that account for their efficacy of pain and depression, along with sort of anticholinergic and antihistaminic effects which lead to sedation. There's lots of different ones that have been out there. So all at standard doses, all tricyclists have shown equal efficacy for neuropathic pain. They're not all equal in promoting sleep. So of all of the tricyclists, does anyone know the one that's been FDA approved for sleep, the only one? Doxepin is the only one. So they, they, I forget the name they called it. That's a really low dose, you know. Um, so, but all of them have an effect. You know, we use, may use like really low dose amitriptyline for sleep because higher doses they get that anticholinergic side effects and they're not going to take it long term. But it can be really effective if you get the patient in the right kind of like sweet spot with the tricyclic. So you're getting sleep, pain, and, and, and some anxiety and depression effects. Trazodone, again, is again kind of an odd antidepressant. I don't think it's a very good antidepressant, but we use it a lot for sleep. It's an antagonistic of the serotonin type 2 histamine and alpha 1 adrenergic receptors and weakly inhibits at the serotonin reuptake. Has most of its hypnotic effects at low doses. Um, there's some evidence of adjunctive effect when used with pregabalin for pain patients. So again, this combination can be very effective. I think it's a really effective one. So if you do this long enough, you always have cute stories, right? So I had a patient who walked in my office, and he literally was doing this in, the, in his sleep. And I said, do you have to go to the bathroom? And he goes, no. And I said, did they just start you on trazodone? He goes, how'd you know that? We had priapism. <laughs> So I got him, an, someone started him on 300 milligrams right out of the thing. So he had priapism, so I got him an ice pack to sit on. He was fine. So very, at lower doses, they have very low side effect profile, can really be effective for patients. So you have low-dose tricyclics. You have trazodone as, as one. Another one is, is mirtazapine, which is an antidepressant with sedating qualities due to this as antagonism of the type 1 histaminergic and serotonin type 2 receptors. It's an interesting molecule because... At lower doses, like 30, 15, 7.5, it's very effective for you know, sleep. And then for an antidepressant effect, you have to go over 45, but it's less effective for sleep. Now, the biggest problem with this is that they use a lot in cancer patients when cancer patients aren't sleeping and they have a um, you know, problem with appetite suppression. So it's an appetite stimulant. So if your patient has above you know, average BMI, you have to be careful about using mirtazapine because they'll be really angry at you when they gain 30 pounds. So, you, and I have a patient that is really underweight and he's struggling and it has sleep disturbance. Mirtazapine is a perfect drug for him. So you have to be really careful with this, these side effect profiles, but can be really helpful for patients. What about melatonin receptor agonists? There's a bunch of these. So melatonin receptor agonists include the natural ligand melatonin as well as sort of non-melatonin drugs, which are melaton, which is actually a prescription drug. Has anyone prescribed or suggested melatonin to patients? Did it work? I think it works for when people have really minor sleep disturbance, but when people have these big sleep disturbance, I haven't seen much of one. Again, melatonin is available over the counter. It's not FDA approved. In 2005, they did approve remelaton, which is a melatonin receptor agonist for treatment of sleep, and I've had one patient out of maybe 20 that actually responded to it and did well with it. What about antipsychotics? Who has the courage to start people on antipsychotics for sleep disturbance? <laughs> Please tell me there's someone who has courage that does. So you see it a lot, and psychiatrists do it a lot when people have been refractory, but there's a variety of different ones. You know, Seroquel has been used a lot for sleep disturbance. There's self-reported outcomes, and polysomnographic data suggests its efficacy in improving 
Again, very low doses can have this really beneficial effect. It's been known to help with anxiety, can serve as an adjunctive to antidepressant. But again, there's lots of really nasty side effects, you know, prolonged QT interval and risk of, of tardive dyskinesia. And I've had one patient who started on Seroquel uh, for sleep disorders with no other benefit and de developed tardive dyskinesia and was not a, a pretty sight. I think what's interesting is the use of uh, anti-epileptic drugs. So, you know, gabapentin, pregabalin often are used to treat chronic pain conditions, particularly neuropathic ones, but it can also be effective for comorbid insomnia. So when patients come in, they say, the gabapentin is making me sleepy during the day. You can load it up at night and still get the efficacy for pain, but also help them with sleep. Uh, in multiple studies uh, have shown that both the neuropathic and fibromyalgia self-reported sleep outcomes suggest positive effects with sleep latency, wakefulness, and increased deep sleep. And they both have adjunctive effects on depression and anxiety. So again, a lot of these AEDs are, are mood stabilizers. And every patient is a different spin of the DNA, right? Not everyone responds to everything the same way. So you really have to have, it's an art. So if you get, I have patients that if you get on the right anti-epileptic drug, it helps their pain, it helps them sleep, helps their mood stabilization, and if you're lucky enough, that's the only drug you have them on. So again, it depends on what the patient's kind of response is. Pregabalin has shown increased efficacy in promoting sleeping patients with diabetic neuropathy compared to amitriptyline. And again, we all know the adverse effects with these medications. But again, in this pain 101, what kind of pain do they have? So if they're neuropathic pain and they have anxiety and mood instability and they're not sleeping, get the right dosing of the, anti, the AED and kind of load it up at night. You can really have a positive effect in all three domains. There's a variety of over-the-counter medications. Uh, you know, most of them have first-generation antihistamines. They quickly develop tolerance to these agents. There are no controlled studies demonstrating efficacy for more than three weeks, so Benadryl is not going to help them long-term. And again, they have lots of different side effects with the patients. What about clinical considerations? There's been a lot of concerns in black box warnings about both antidepressants and anti-epileptic drugs actually increasing the risk of suicide. So these are two studies by uh, Bob Dworkin's group. And one was looking at the, at the results of suicidality with anti-epileptic drugs. And both with antidepressant and anti-epileptic drugs, the, the data is really kind of very, not very clear. And they included, in spite of the, sort of the limitations of these studies, suggest that there is some risk of suicidality and it should be assessed in patients. So if you're starting someone who's naive to anti-epileptic drugs or even antidepressants, you should be really careful and just at least do a screening of them after, you know, after you've started the drug. They did a, a, a parallel study looking at the risk of suicide in patients with antidepressants. And again, they've had the same process. They, there was assessment of there was some increased risk, particularly between patients between 18 and 25. So you should just be wary that when you're starting naive patients that have not been on antidepressants or AEDs, that you should screen for suicidal ideation. What about exercise? How many people exercise here, right? Why do you exercise? Feel good, right? Exactly. I had a medical student, another story. I had a medical student, or a medical resident, and I was giving a lecture on something else, and she raised her hand. She said, I just said off note, but how do you get patients to stop smoking? I go, huh, it's interesting. Do you exercise? So I could tell she exercised. She looked fit. She goes, yeah, I exercise. I said, why do you exercise? It makes me feel good, it makes me feel calm. I said, you don't do it for cardiovascular effect and all the good things? She goes, no, it makes me feel calm. Well, people, you want to get people to stop smoking? What does not smoking give them personally? 
and that's how you get them to stop smoking. Anyway, side note. But exercise can not only enhance the release of endogenous opiates, endorphins, and thus reducing the use of prescription opiates, but it can also reduce the mortality and morbidity related to major health problems of not exercising. Recent data from randomized controlled studies just suggest that aerobic exercise significantly improves function and quality of life in patients with low back pain, and it's also been proven to be a potent axiolytic, right? So I live in Philadelphia, so I'll go to the gym at 5.30, and it is my lithium, you know? Or I'll walk to work back and forth, and, you know, it's just, you just feel calmer. So sometimes if you get people exercising, and they see this benefit of anxiety control, mood escalation, and improving their functionality. So again, that's part of the multimodal approach of managing these patients and opioid sparing. What about cognitive behavioral therapy? So patients with, with pain do two things, right? One is catastrophizing. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, the pain is gonna kill me and overwhelm me. And kinesiophobia, which is fear of movement, which leads to deconditioning, weight gain, and more pain and dysfunction. The whole point of CBT is to have the patient reconceptualize their role in treatment. We've done a bad job in our country where we've conditioned patients to follow the H sign to the hospital and we'll take care of them. And I tell patients, your pain is your problem. It's not my problem. You're either gonna take control of this and be proactive or reactive. So cognitive behavioral therapy is about getting the patient to be proactive, to develop certain skills like mindfulness-based meditation, uh, cognitive restructuring, assertiveness training, and then follow it with kind of uh, uh, relapse training, rehearsal. And we found that it's very effective for a number of cases. <clears throat> it's been found effective in re- improving mood and function. Let's be very clear. I tell every patient, the goal of pain management is not pain reduction. If you go from an eight to a five on a scale and you're still sitting on your couch eating, eating Dorito chips, we've done a bad job. The whole point of pain management for chronic pain patients is mood and function because that's the whole point of our treatment. So in all of these conditions, CBT has been found to be extremely efficacious in improving function and mood, arthritis, sickle cell disease, chronic low back pain, TMJ, um, lupus, and pain in breast cancer patients. So it's extremely effective. Another role of CBT is insomnia. Has anyone had recently had trouble sleeping at night? Isn't it just hell? You're sitting there at 3 o'clock, and every demon comes into your head. And you have to get up at 6, and all you're saying is, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep. And I always see it's like I'm lying here in bed, and all, this, all my worst fears are coming into my head. So what happens is they get caught in this sort of thought process, behavior, emotions that just keeps feeding. And patients who have chronic sleep disturbance, they have these chronic poor habits. So CBT for insomnia has been demonstrated to be equally effective or superior to pharmacotherapy in patients with chronic primary insomnia. And it really consists of of six basic process, psychoeducation about sleep and insomnia. And I add the pain in there, so I tell patients about the cold presser tests and how not sleeping is actually affecting their pain tolerance. Stimulus control. Every patient wants to have a TV in their bedroom. And I said, your bedroom is for the two S's, sex and sleep. And so people will come in, they have a TV, their computer, their exercise equipment. And, I tell, and what happens is the room gets conditioned that when you want to go to sleep, the room is telling you to do 10 other things. Right? So get, and the hardest part is getting the patient to get the TV out of the room. I swear, that's the hardest thing to do. So it's stimulus control, sleep restriction. So what we do with patients, you say, 
I want you to get up every day at 7.30, come hell or high water. I don't care if you go to sleep at 2, 3. And what happens is, is that their body will start adjusting and pushing back their sleeps. So they're getting a good 7 to 8 hours. Sleep hygiene techniques. Lots of foods promote sleep and also disturb sleep. Like, I didn't realize this, but, but fruit, like citrus fruit, you know, has sugar in it. It stimulates it. Um, so it's getting them to eat certain things. Um, also, when they exercise. So if you exercise around 4 or 5 in the afternoon, it, it actually improves your sleep and your circadian rhythm. If you exercise earlier, it has no effect. If you exercise later, it actually disrupts your circadian rhythm. Teaching them relaxation training and the cognitive restructuring. So when you're lying in bed and you're just thinking about all these irrational, dysfunctional thoughts, it's teaching them to sort of stop, breathe, reflect, and choose. You know, to, to really deal with the irrational thoughts around not sleeping. This is a study done by Carla Youngquist, and they looked at the cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. So there was a parallel group, randomized single uh, trial of CBT insomnia with a contact measurement control condition. So there were 28 subjects with chronic neck and back pain. They were randomized into these two groups. And what they found is the patients that got the CBTI had significant improvement in sleep, and they maintained this improvement over six months um, even in spite of moderate to severe pain. So even, because what patients always tell me is, I don't sleep because I have pain, right? So that's always the thing. But this study will suggest that they actually improved in spite of their pain. And if they have less sleep disturbance, they're going to have better pain control and mood control. This is a, one by a Nicole Tang where they looked at a hybrid combining both CBT pain and insomnia and they compared it to a control group, and they found that the hybrid group reported greater reductions in pain interference, fatigue, and depression than the monitoring group, and this was, this was durable up to six months. So even this hybrid approach was attacking both the pain and insomnia and improving their function, sleep, and mood. So the bottom line is mood, anxiety, and sleep disorders are common comorbidities in chronic pain. Each one can separately cause additional suffering impact quality of life, and combination can be devastating to these patients. And only this comprehensive approach, picking the right molecules for the right patient, along with cognitive behavioral therapy, exercise, et cetera, will improve this. And access to efficacious treatments need to be addressed. My biggest problem is how many people can get someone successfully into a pain psychologist? Anybody who's not a pain psychologist? <laughs> right? There's not many of them around. I'm a pain psychologist, and I'm one of four in the tri-state area, and that's Pennsylvania, Delaware, and New Jersey. So access is a big problem, right? Is everyone familiar with the CDC guidelines, right? Everyone's familiar with that. It's half of it is good, is good just how you should practice anyway. The other half of it is fantasy, right? So you shouldn't start opiates, right? If you're going to start opiates, you first should do physical therapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, acupuncture, uh, hot, hot rock massage. Does anyone, can anyone patient afford that? No one has access to this stuff. So again, I think part of the problem is, is that we have efficacious therapies, but we don't have access for our patients. Every time I give a lecture about biopsychosocial approach to pain, I say, I'm going to tell you the perfect way to manage your patients, and at the end of the talk, tell you you can't do it. So I think there needs to be a reform in our reimbursement system. So all of these things I've talked about, comorbidities, are extremely effective. But we need to have a reform that actually cognitive medicine, nursing practice gets reimbursed. Do I hear a hallelujah from the cognitive people here? Right? How can you manage a patient in seven minutes? How can you sit and not sit and figure out all these comorbidities without having the time to do it? 
and we're not reimbursing for it. And that's where everyone who has to stand up and start lobbying that this about reimbursement. Next month or later this month, I'm going to this, this group. Um, it's up in Long Island, but they've organized it through the NIH where they're having pain people, but they're also having all the insurer agents, all like Medicare, Med, uh, Blue Cross, uh, Aetna. We're going to be locked away for four days, and they want to look at um, what is value-based uh, for assessment and treatment of pain. So I hope it's not fantasy, because I have a big mouth. As you get older, you know, you have less frontal. I've never had prefrontal control, but it's gotten worse as I've gotten older. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. When you're younger, you go like, that's a great idea. You get a little older, you go like, how stupid is that? <laughs> but I hope we have to, we have to do this, because I'm so sick of doing it. I've been doing this for three decades, and I'm so sick of everyone coming up with guidelines and this and that with no substance behind it. And so what I'm telling you is these are all effective, but we need to change it. We need to reimburse for things. And the other thing I think is, needs a lot of work is e-health. You know, I mean, there's lots of things we can deliver through telemedicine. The VA's been doing it for years. There's lots of applications. There's some good programs for cognitive behavioral therapy for pain that show some real benefit. But again, we need to kind of really put more money into it and more effort into it, not someone who's in their basement or their mother is trying to get an app for a billion dollars, but really have some vetted apps and get patients to buy into it. So I'm not trying to be on a soapbox, but all of us need to stand together. You need to be reimbursed for the talents you have, and you can't do this in seven minutes, right? So thank you very much for your attention. So any questions? Well, you know, I trained, you know, 100 years ago, and there was no such thing as pain psychology. It really just took going to conferences like this and developing skills and working with people that have been in the field before, you know, and I think they obviously have to have good training in cognitive behavioral therapy, acceptance commitment therapy. So I think if someone's going to be more of a Rogerian or a, you know, a, a insight-oriented therapy, you're not going to help your patients much. Um, so I think that they have to have at least the basics in CBT, ACT, and then I think that they, you know, should go to conferences like this. They should listen to lectures. I mean, there's ways you have to do it. We're, we're, they're trying to really push to really have certification for pain psychology, which is, that's been a big push lately. Um, but I think that they have to have those basics, you know, because uh, that's what you're going to do. You have a great volume with patients. You need to have some quick, simple interventions to help these people. It can't be on the couch for 20 years. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I would just, I, I agree. Social workers are great at training this. So, mindfulness based meditation is really, if you go to PubMed and put in mindfulness, it's like 2,600 applications. So mindfulness-based, everything I said, cognitive behavioral therapy, assertiveness training, they just the basics of it. And social workers are equally trained. Uh, what about uh, psychotherapy training and psychotherapy? Say, say I can... Psych, uh, psychotherapy training and psychotherapy. 
Yeah, I think it helps some patients. You know, again, I, I, I think it's a long-term efficacy I worry about. I mean, a lot of patients will use, you know, flexoril, cyclobenzaprine works great for, you know, for some patients. I think it's a degree of how serious their pain, their, their sleep disturbance is. Um, and patients who have these really refractory behavioral ones, they really need the CBT along with that. I don't care, and flexoril is a good, a good one that I've suggested to patients a lot. Um, but I think that, again, they need that combined treatment. And some people, I mean, I think everyone responds differently. Some people have 10 milligrams of cyclobenzaprine, and that works for them for years. Other people, it doesn't work at all. So I think it just depends on the patient. Any other questions?